Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining us today for the Monday broadcast. And I hope that you join me today and tomorrow as I'll be talking about the subject of biblical community. Biblical community. And let me say this right at the beginning. Uh, that if you're not involved in a good Bible-believing church, I want to encourage you to be part of the church. You know, a few years ago, there was a movie that was released, and it was called The Perfect Storm. I told about the heroic tale of a ship that had encountered a -a once-in-a-lifetime storm, a perfect storm that resulted in tragedy. Well, unbeknownst to the captain of the ship, three separate storms were brewing on the Atlantic. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. All three weather systems collided in a single point, creating some of the most violent seas ever recorded. In the previous studies that we've done, uh, we've looked at different storms that are raging within our lives. And I think about the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the church. I guess we could say there was a couple of perfect storms that were brewing. How the culture was not accepting of the gospel. The culture in many ways was not prepared for the gospel. So God raised up a guy by the name of John the Baptist. Now I've discovered how God works, right? Maybe you've discovered this. Every time that God wants to do something great, every time he wants to make a large impact, he always raises up people to do it. And he starts with one individual and then it spreads like wildfire. Well, I'm thinking about how the church got started on the day of Pentecost. Henry Newell noted, wondering how things will be for me after I die almost seems like a distraction. And let me put it clear as to what he's saying. He's saying, what my clear goal is eternal life, and that life must be reachable now where I am because eternal life is life in and life with God, and God is where I am here and now. Uh, So the reason that this point is so valid is that I want you to know that everlasting life begins at the moment of conversion. Your life will be radically changed the day you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. If you're not born again, if your life hasn't been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. You you see, this is great mystery of the spiritual life. That is life in God. It's that we don't have to wait for it like it's something that's going to happen later. Jesus said, dwell in me, as I dwell in you. It is this divine indwelling that really starts eternal life. It is that active presence of God at the center of my living. Now, the moment that God's Spirit takes up residence within me, that's when He gives me eternal life. It is the active presence of God at the center of my living. Now, that's when the Spirit comes within me. So, here's the bottom line. If we ask Jesus to manifest his joy in our lives for his glory, he will answer our prayer. He says, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Now, others will see in us the joy that our soul longs to have. Even those who don't know Christ will see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives in the culture that we're living in. And they will be drawn to the Spirit, that source of joy in our lives. I want you to know that faith is a gift that is given to us by Jesus. We have great faith, and that's a gift. You think about faith, and sometimes people say, wow, there's a person of great faith. I wish I had that kind of faith, right? When you think about faith, that is a gift of God. I guess you could say it's like this. You could say, well, uh, what do you do when you exemplify great faith in something? 
you have confidence in that person. It's kind of like if you were to say to me, if you go away for a few days, uh, well, do you worry about your wife? Uh, Do you worry if she's got a boyfriend on the side? Or do you worry if she's going to be unfaithful to you? And I would say, well, no, I don't. And you say, why don't you worry? You must be a person of great faith. Uh, You must have this immense faith uh, that your wife is going to be uh, not cheating on you. And I said, no, that's really not what it is. It's not that I have such a great faith, it's that I have such a great wife, right? Because I know how much she loves me, I know how much I love her, and so I have the confidence in her, but that confidence is her. It's not my great faith. And now when we think about the starting of the church and we see all the amazing things that happened on that day of Pentecost, it was 50 days after Jesus was crucified. He ascended on high, and he says, when I go up, the Holy Spirit will come down, and on that 50th day is when we see the foundation of the church being formulated. We see the church coming together. And I want you to know, the gospel changes everything, everything. You know, as recently as seven years ago, there was an author and a speaker by the name of Doreen Virtue, Doreen Virtue. Uh, She was the world's top-selling New Age author. She enjoyed an unbelievable uh, lifestyle. I mean, she was very lucrative. Uh, She lived on a 50-acre ranch in Hawaii. Her publisher treated her like a rock star, flying her and her husband first class, and they would go to sold-out workshops all across the world. She rubbed elbows with the rich and the famous and and all the, the celebrities, and she even described her life and her teaching this way. She says, New Agers often view Christianity as having these very dogmatic rules. But they have their own rigid standards about what an enlightened person must and mustn't do. She goes on by saying, During my 20 years as a New Age teacher, I promoted techniques like positive affirmations, you know, believing and teaching that your words create your reality. You know, speak it, therefore it will become, right? We held up our wealth and we held up our fame as evidence that our principles were true and effective. Yet despite this worldly success, we were unrepentant sinners with lives marred by divorce and addiction. Having sold out workshops, standing ovations, adoring fans, and celebrity friends gave us a swollen ego. She said, I remember believing my every thought. There was a message or a sign from God or his angels. But in January 2015, everything changed. She was driving along a Hawaiian road, listening to a Scottish-born pastor, Alistair Begg. It was a sermon called Itching Ears, taken from 2 Timothy chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul writes that in the end times, people will want their itching ears tickled by false teachers who offer false hope. She goes on by saying, I could tell he was describing people just like me. God used Begg's sermon to convict me for the first time in my life. His words pierced my stony heart, and I felt the shame of my false teachings. Then when I read Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 12, I encountered a list of sinful activities that included several that I was practicing, such as divination, interpreting signs and omens and mediumship. I was broken, deeply ashamed and humbled. I dropped to my knees in shame and sorrow. 
I'm so sorry, God. I kept wailing in repentance. I didn't know. On that very day, I gave my life to Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. You know, that decision had far-reaching consequences. Doreen and her husband left their fancy Hawaiian home. Her New Age publisher ended their professional relationship. Now New Agers treat her as an object of scorn. You know, having to admit that I was wrong, she said, to an entire world. My books were published in 38 different languages. She says it has been deeply humbling. Even so, I needed that humility to better learn how to lean upon God. After seeking but never finding peace in New Age, I have finally found it in Christ. Finding Christ. It is the beginning of a new relationship with Jesus and so many new friends. You know, if you are a follower of Christ, God has a community of believers that he wants you to be fellowshipping with. He wants you to do life with them. You know, we were not designed to walk this Christian life by ourselves. You know, the tallest trees in the world are redwood trees. They are enormous. Some grow over 300 feet tall. But have you ever noticed that they start out as very small seeds? The tallest tree in the world right now is a redwood tree named Hyperion. It was discovered back in 2006, and it stands almost 380 feet tall. But this tree also started out as a very small seed. Redwood seeds are so small that one million of them put together only weighs eight pounds. And yet one of these seeds, when it takes root and it begins to grow, it can produce a tree that people come from miles around to see. You see, Christianity today started out as a very small movement on the day of Pentecost. 120 believers gathered around and they huddled together there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, verse number 15. And today, because of that humble beginning and because the Spirit of God was upon that place, Christianity now has over 2 billion adherents. I I want you to know, Jesus wants you to be part of his church. Uh, Let's look at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 41 down to 47 as we talk about biblical community. Acts 2.41 says this, So they devoted uh, those who received the word were baptized. They were added to that church about 3,000 souls. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed and were together had all things in common. We continue on, and it says, And they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing all the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread in homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Now, in this little passage here, we discover there are great biblical churches, and they all have certain things in common. There's five things that every church will have in common. So you want to find a church that has these things in common, and you want to go ahead and join that church, be part of that community, okay? Here's the first thing. They have discipleship. Acts chapter 2 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is not only listening to sermons. 
They studied the scriptures and they said, is this true? Is it relevant? How can I live this and how can I pass it on? Uh, So they were heavily involved in discipleship. Uh, They were also involved in serving one another. It says that as they were serving one another, they were there ministering to each other. And then we find in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, and Matthew 4, 19, that these are helpful verses that give the framework of what it's like to be a New Testament disciple. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. So I think that we can summarize by saying there are three characteristics of one who follows Christ. Number one, you got to be changed by Jesus. Now, debates about morality will never be properly followed by a person who's not changed by Jesus, right? For example, the woman that was caught in adultery, John 8, 11, and those who don't know Christ love to use this passage of Scripture to try to drive home the point that Jesus never judged anybody. Jesus understood in John chapter 8, verse 11, that they were trying to trap him, and Jesus didn't fall for their trap. You know the story of the woman caught in adultery? Jesus didn't fall for it, and neither should we. Jesus says, neither I condemn you, but go and sin no more. So we notice the three characteristics. Number one is you follow Christ. Number two, you got to be changed by Christ. If you've never been changed by Christ, you have never been converted. You are lost. You're without hope. It's when you become a follower of Christ and you become changed by Christ, and then you become committed to his mission. That's right. You follow through the mission that he has for you. So the first characteristic of a Bible-believing church is that they're heavily involved in discipleship. Here's the second thing. They're heavily involved in fellowship. It is only possible fellowship with believers. You can fall out of fellowship with a church, and and that's the case, and I'm talking about the church as a whole. If you decide that I'm never going back to church and you fall out of fellowship, you were probably not part of the fellowship in the first place. That's what John said. John says, those who leave us were never part of us in the first place. Maybe you got caught up in an emotion of the moment, but you think about fellowship. We were wired to have fellowship, and we have fellowship with other believers. I guess you could say, it's kind of like me saying, I'm going to be a great husband, but I'm not going to be married. How can you be a great husband if you're not married? Or or I'm going to be a great husband, but I'm never going to spend any time with my wife. You can't be a great husband without spending time with your wife. You can't be a great follower of Christ without fellowshipping with other believers. And as we look at this point, Rabbi Elliot Kukla once described a woman with a brain injury who would sometimes fall to the floor. People around her would rush to her immediately to get her back up on her feet before she was quite ready. She told Kukla, I think people rush to help me up because they're so uncomfortable with seeing an adult lying on the floor. But what I really need is for somebody to get down on the ground with me. You see, we all need somebody to get down on the ground with us. This is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. This is what we are expected to do for one another. Unfortunately, when we get down, Many times, instead of having somebody come down with us, we abandon ship. Listen, as you think about fellowship, somebody put it like this, which I thought is quite accurate in describing what happens as we fellowship with believers. He says, it's kind of like porcupines. Porcupines come together to get warm. It's freezing outside, and so they they huddle together so they can get the warmth of one another. But then, as they get close to each other, they poke each other, right? Listen, 
I think that people need more strokes than pokes without a doubt, but from time to time, you're going to get poked. From time to time, people are going to rub you the wrong way. From time to time, you're going to have disagreements with people. That's all part of life. Listen, as I think about my relationship with my wife, we don't always see eye to eye, but we always try to walk hand in hand. It was Billy Graham who said, if both husband and wife are thinking alike 100% of the time, one of them's not necessary. Listen, iron sharpens iron. One person is going to sharpen another, and that sharpening process is sometimes very uncomfortable. But I tell you what, I'd rather do life with other believers than try to do it by myself because I wasn't designed to do life by myself. That's why we need a lot of grace. We need a lot of mercy as we connect with each other. Well, there's something else that a church ought to have. A Bible-believing church also has in common that they all are involved in service. They're all involved in, in ministry. You know, when I think about ministry, there are no such things as a prominent service or an obscure service. It is all the same to God. Listen, the one who is in the nursery uh, watching our little children is just as important as the one who is up leading worship or the one giving the message. Listen, the one that gives you a bulletin as you walk through the front door of the church and puts a smile on your face is just as important as the person that is leading the small group. (laughs) Yeah, as I think about that, one thing I know. Uh, The only ones among you who are really going to be happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. The happiest people in any church are those who are serving. And I, yesterday, I had a chance to visit another church, and I very rarely I get to go to another church because I'm always preaching in my church uh, just about every Sunday. But my grandson, they wanted to have a little prayer for him at the church that they are attending. And so I went to this church, and, and uh, you know, as I walked into the church, I immediately felt the love of God's people. I connected with them easily. As a matter of fact, I didn't get through uh, that experience of worshiping with this wonderful church in Virginia Beach uh, without finding a couple people that I knew, and uh, it was so good to see them. You know, as you think about this love that you have for other believers, God brings this connection, and it's really hard to put it into words, but you can tell as you're talking to somebody if that person is a Christ follower. Just a few minutes talking to them, and you discover that they are followers of Christ. Every one of us should be involved in serving. You know, I was talking to a couple people at the end of that service, and uh, one of the guys I met 20 years ago, and uh, he and I uh, hadn't seen each other for a long time, and uh, and it was so good to see him. I said, what are you doing here at this church? He said, man, I love serving here in this church. He's an elder at, at that church, and at the end of the service, he prays with people as they come forward, and he says, I love leading the small group uh, that I'm leading. And uh, just uh, his, his life was filled with joy. He was just bubbling all over the place because he was serving the Lord. Now, Jesus said this, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. That's found in Matthew 20, 28. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to be a servant. There's something else that Bible-believing churches have in common. They worship together. Did you know we actually become whatever it is that we worship? It was Ralph Waldo Emerson who famously says, what we are worshiping, we are becoming. In other words, our deities shape our identities. Let's call this Emerson's Law, he he said. He says, consider it, uh, as you look at Emerson's Law, consider it in the lives of two men. One was the evolutionary scientist, 
Charles Darwin, who wrote in his autobiography these words. And it's kind of heart-wrenching, right? Uh, when you see what he writes about himself, he says, my chief enjoyment, my sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. From this work, he added, I am never idle, as it is the only thing which makes life endurable to me. Now, what effect did devoting himself to this scientific work have on the person of Darwin and who he became? This is what he said. He says, up to the age of 30, he says, I love poetry. It gave me great pleasure. And then I took intense delight in Shakespeare. But now, for many years, I found it is so intolerably dull that I feel nauseated by it. My mind seems to have become like a machine for grinding general laws out of large collection of facts. This loss is a loss of happiness. I became, he said, a withered leaf for every subject except science, which he saw now at the end of his life as a great evil. Uh, well, that's. Darwin, Charles Darwin. Now let's consider Emerson's law at work in the life of another influential genius, a theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards. At the age of 19, Edwards wrote these words, Resolved to cast my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in Him, and consecrate myself wholly to Him. Later in his life, Edwards reflected on how his object of worship had affected his soul over the years, and he says, It has brought to me an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, a ravishment to the soul. In other words, it made the soul like a field or a garden. Here we see two gifted men. One became a withered leaf, and the other became a garden. The object of their ultimate devotion shaped the very different kind of men these two became. So who are you worshiping today? Oh, please get involved in a Bible-believing church that involves worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord Jesus Christ and Him and Him alone. The more you worship Him, the more you will become like Him. Oh, you're never going to become Jesus. I'm not saying that. But you become like the person or whatever it is that you worship. Now, there's something else that Bible-believing churches have in common. They are heavy on evangelism. They love to share the gospel wherever they go. Neil Postman says about evangelism, all our knowledge results from questions. Those who are really good at sharing the gospel are really good at asking questions. He points out, when you look at questions, Questions are designed to bring out information. As somebody you may know says, well, I don't believe in God. What if instead of giving your response for God, you respond differently by asking this question? By saying, you know, it's interesting that you don't believe in God. Would you tell me more about that? Or tell me about the God that you don't believe in? Did you know that in the four Gospels, Jesus asked a lot of questions? In fact, he asked 183 questions, but he only answered three of them. Instead of answering, he took 307 questions back. If anyone didn't need to ask a question, it was Jesus. Why do you think he did that? 
Good questions can help us understand much more about somebody and can help us process what they believe, knowing where they are coming from will be very helpful in wisely formulating an answer when the time comes when they're open to discussion. So these are the points of a great Bible-believing church. Look for a church that is heavy on evangelism. Look for a church that is involved in worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Look for a church that is heavily involved in fellowship. Listen, you need fellowship. Get into a small group. Get into a group of believers where you study the Bible together. Get into a church that is heavy on discipleship so that you grow deeper in your faith. Well, I hope to see you this Sunday. And I'm so happy to report that we've had several of our listening audience come and worship with us on Sunday. I would love to see you this Sunday at 9 o'clock or at 1045. Listen, God's doing great things at Hickory Ridge Community Church. We would love to have you part of our family. And if I can help you in any way, please shoot me a text, 252-267-2365. Shoot me a text at 252-267-2365. I'll be happy to pray with you and help you any way that I can. Thank you so much for listening. Pick up part two tomorrow of the broadcast on Biblical Community. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.